0: You ever stop and think, why am I the way I am? Now, there's certain physical attributes that I look at my parents and go, that's exactly where I got that from. This is my father's belly. You look at different things about your, yourself and your upbringing, but you ever stop and think, why do I, when I'm given an opportunity, respond in a certain way? Why do I have a short fuse? Why do I have no patience for that person? Why do I do this? Why am I susceptible to, to going down this particular path? Why are some people really patient, and I find myself blowing up all the time, or vice versa? Sometimes it's your family, it's your culture. You can blame society. You can blame which school you went to. You can blame the television or movies or music you listen to. You look at fashion. You stop and think to yourself, who told you? And I'll use myself as the example, okay, but I'm not trying to be proud here who told you that this looks good like you know think about it going back remember what you used to wear some of you that were alive in the 60s and you think about who told you that looked good you know flares i'm sure they'll come back but they never looked good or white patent leather shoes life is filled with choices Every day you have a choice of how you're going to respond. When God gives you a prompting or you have an opportunity or someone pushes you wrong that one time too many, you have an opportunity to respond one way or the other. And maybe you say to yourself, that's just the way I am. And to be honest with you, that's probably a pretty natural response. That's just the way I am? Well, that's just the way that I've always been. Or maybe you look at, uh, around and you look at the circumstances, because, because that happened to me when I was seven years old, and that's the way I am today. Life is the culmination of not just one decision. I believe it's the culmination of thousands of daily decisions. Decisions we make today will determine where we end up in the future. Information is coming into our minds constantly, even now. Information is coming in, and you are responding a certain way with all the information that's coming to your mind. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to stop for just a few moments, and we're going to look at some of the choices that we make and maybe some of the reasons why we make the choices we make, and then looking at the Word of God, We're going to make some application. We're going to use the account in Exodus chapter 17 of Moses and the nation of Israel. And also, I guess there's a third character here, and God in that passage. And we're going to look at three different choices. There's two of them are very, very natural choices. The other is not a natural choice. And I believe the first two are, in a sense, the negative. The third is where we should be heading towards, which is really the unnatural The first choice is to turn to yourself. The second one is to turn to others. The third is, can you guess because we're in church, to turn to God. And we're going to see this in the life of Israel. Every single week in your bulletin, you open up your bulletin, there is the sermon notes. And on top of the sermon notes, there's a principle. And the reason why we have a principle is that way you can mold in your mind, what are we actually studying today? And what is the goal to get out of our time together? And the principle for today is this. God's grace stands before me. Now, we're in church right now, so I know this is a school, but we're in church right now, and the safe answer is absolutely God stands before me. 100% God is there for me. It's it's a safe environment to, to say absolutely I trust in God. But what about in about an hour and a half's time? or less when you're at home, or Monday when you go to school, or you go to work? Is God's grace standing before you? The word grace, to give you a very, very simple definition, is God's favor upon the undeserving. God's favor upon you and I. It's God's grace. It's receiving something positive that's wonderful that you and I Do not deserve. In our society today, we have lots of choices. We're faced with choices in the next few weeks, as far as the morality and and the direction of our nation going forward. Are we going to allow culture to define us and and make us choose a certain way simply because the newspaper says we should go a certain way, or because someone at school said something? Or should we go back to the source of knowledge? And I believe the source of knowledge and of source of knowing the, of God is the Word of God. This is a Bible. And knowing the Bible and finding out what God has for us and teaches us. Are we going to allow culture to, to determine our future? Or are we going to allow the Scripture and truth to determine our future? To give you a quick background. We're going to go through a number of verses here to give you a background of what's taking place in Exodus chapter 17. But in order to do that, I'm going to go back to Exodus. In fact, before that, in the book of Genesis, the previous book, God came and spoke to a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless through you. The entire world, your offspring are going to be like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. There's going to be so many of them. The only problem was Abraham had no children. God blessed him with a child. He worked in through his son Isaac, and gave the same promise to Isaac. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. God blessed him, and Isaac had two sons, and God worked through the second son, Jacob, and he said the same thing to Jacob. Three generations. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your nation great. You're going to be like the stars of the heaven, and through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. And then, the, through the end of, in fact, if you read the end of the book of Genesis, the nation, the, the small nation of Israel, with about 72 people at the time, moved to Egypt and were protected from a worldwide famine. Then you turn the page and you go to the book of Exodus. What you don't realize is there's 400 plus years that have taken place between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And now, 400 years later, Israel has been very, very successful. They've been to the point where some Bible commentators and Bible scholars estimate there could be up to two and a half million Israelites. That's a lot of people. They were fruitful and multiplied. Then we see, like, let's look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It says this But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Through that course of that time, the Egyptians had seen the, the Israelites, and they'd seen that they were different, and they'd turned them into slaves. And not just one generation of slaves. I believe it was generational slavery. They were slaves for generation after generation after generation after generation. I don't know about you, but how many of you really know about your great, 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 great grandparents 300, 400 years ago? What promises of God were in their lives? And Israel was beginning to live as if slavery was the norm, not the promises of God in their lives. And through that time, God continued to bless them. They continued to multiply in number and that caught the attention of Pharaoh and Pharaoh got nervous and in chapter number two of the book of Exodus verses 23 through 25, it says this, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groanings and remembered the covenant that he had with Abraham with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Through that time, Pharaoh became very belligerent against the Israelites. Ended up trying to kill all the male babies of the the Israelite ladies. And horrible genocide through that time. But God spared one young man. If you know the book of Exodus, you know his name is Moses. And God miraculously worked in Moses' life and quite providentially, they were hiding him in the bulrushes and along came the princess of the Pharaoh and she found Moses and raised him as her own son in in Pharaoh's household. Moses had absolutely everything until he threw it all away by trying to take on Egypt in, in himself. Ended up running away to the land of Midian. Forty years later, God comes and speaks to Moses. And he calls out to Moses in Exodus chapter number three, verses nine and ten. Now, behold, the cry of the the people of Israel come to me, and I've seen the oppression in which the Egyptians oppressed them. And verse ten, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here we have Egypt oppressing the nation of Israel 400 years later and a lot of people later, we have God working in one man's life and says, I'm going to send you to Egypt to liberate my people. And God does that. Through that time, we have the 10 plagues. God also brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. Really, a little side note, absolutely incredible. He's, God works in the Egyptians' lives and he tells all of Israel, go and ask... Your Egyptian slave owners, if you can borrow their stuff and I'm going to work in their life and they're just going to give it to you. And so they went and pillaged the land by just saying, can I borrow that? And they go, sure, you can borrow that. Can I borrow your jewels? Sure, you can borrow my jewels. And God just worked in the way. So they had a whole bunch of jewels, a whole bunch of, of wealth they took with them. And then Egypt woke up and go, what is going on? We need to go back and get these people. And they were on the edge of the Red Sea and God miraculously opened up the Red Sea. And Moses was there with his staff of God in his hand, which he had used before Pharaoh and the ten plagues. And he had that same staff and he put it into the water and the waters parted. Israel walked through that Red Sea on dry ground. The Bible says the waters closed in around the Egyptian army and all the chariots and they died there. Israel had a great response in Exodus chapter number 15, verses 1 and 2. 15, 1 and 2, it says this. This is their response. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. You remember singing this song? The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God. And I will exalt him. And through that, they went in and they began walking towards this promised land that God had promised them generation before generation before. And God provided for them. The end of chapter 15, he gave them water. Going into chapter 16, he gives them food. And they look at it and they go, what is it? And they name it manna, which means what is it? And it was a thin wafer. And the amazing thing with this was God provided it for them six days a week, just enough for one day. And they were to gather together just enough for that one day. They could make little cakes out of it. He also provided quail for them during this time for, the, for meat. And he provided and he said, just gather enough for today because tomorrow I'm going to give you more. And if they didn't, if they gathered too much, it turned to worms in the day, the next day. little... Disgusting side note for you, too. So Israel here is there are liberated people. They had just sung the Lord is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And they've seen the provision of God, not just in their physical protection, but also in their physical nourishment. He's provided for them the food that they need. And now we are into chapter number 17. Chapter 17, and we have some choices. The three choices. And the first choice we have today that Israel was now facing was in is it to turn to yourself. Israel had walked along and they had come to a certain place, which we'll read the scripture in just a second, and they had a choice. Are we going to remember what God did for us just a few days previous? Are we going to remember how he provided for me with food just this morning? Are we going to remember the things of God, or are we going to instantly go back and trust in ourselves and go back to, in a sense, very real way, the old way of living under oppression and living as if I am a slave? Let's read in verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of, of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. Now, wilderness of sin is not sinfulness, that's just the name of the place wilderness of sin sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Riphidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. History here tells us that Israel was an incredibly blessed people. Israel's own history and the things that they personally experienced had told them they are very, very blessed people. But they instantly looked around and go, there is no water here. What are we going to do? How are we going to take care of this problem? And they went to a couple of different things. First of all, self-reliance. Just to give you a little side bit here. I'm going to go through these first points as fast as I can because I want to get to the application. Self-reliance was their first choice. We have a choice. In Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight, gives us a verse. The Bible gives us a verse that says, "And we know." That those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When we live in the purpose of God and we are exactly where God wants us to be, and that's where Israel was at that time, they were exactly where God wanted them to be. They were were where they were by the commandment of the Lord, it says in that verse. But rather than saying, I'm exactly where you want me to be, God, you're going to have to provide for me, they go, There's no water here. They were so angry that they looked at Moses and said, What have you done? Let's um, read verses 3 and verse 7. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock, with thirst? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, maybe your kids are much like mine. At bedtime, they actually have a, a weird disease. About two minutes after we say goodnight and we shut the light off, they have a disease where they die of thirst. And they have to get up out of bed because they're dying of thirst and nothing will console them other than a, a, a smallest sip of water and two or three times of that, and then they're well again. And maybe your kids have the same disease that my kids have. And in a similar way, Israel's done the same thing here. They've forgotten immediately that God provided for them that very morning with food. He forgot that they had just sung a song about God defeating all their, uh, the enemies. And they go and they go, why have you brought us here to kill us? Where is God? Is he among us or not? That's total self-reliance where they look at themselves and go, I'm going to have to handle this on my own and I cannot do that. You end up robbing God of the opportunity to bless you when you, uh, when you live for yourself, when you live in self-reliance. Also with that, we have selfishness. You become very self-centered. And it becomes all about you and what is happening to you at this time. In Luke chapter number 12, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable, and this is a story that he he tells about a man that is commonly referred to as the rich fool which isn't really the most nice way to be remembered through all history as the rich fool. He's a man that had incredible wealth, and God had blessed him. And he came to the conclusion of this in verses 19 through 21. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool. This night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God was not selfish. He had given them absolutely everything that they needed. I believe that God will give you and I everything that we need. Not necessarily everything we want. But everything we need. He's not selfish. If you look at verses in the Bible about giving, the first things that come to our mind are the common verses often shared. We, we talk about things like Acts chapter 20, where it says, "It is more blessed to give than to receive," Or Second Corinthians 9:7. "God loves a cheer." giver. And we often think of that as in far as giving. Those are the first verses that come to our mind. But what about probably the most famous verse in the Bible? John three sixteen, where it's God who was doing the giving. He's the one that's been doing the giving all along. We often focus upon what we have done. We go, God, aren't I good? Look at all that I've done for you. And that's what that rich fool did. Look at all that I have. I can sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, I've been giving since the very beginning. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When you turn to yourself, you become self-reliant and ultimately selfish. And you are not living for God. You're living for yourself. And that's what Israel was struggling with. They are struggling with living for, the, for themselves rather than living in God's blessings and God's promises. The other choice that we see here and the other response when we're given a choice is we can turn to others. And I'm going to preface this by saying when turning to others, I believe it's incredibly important to do life in community. It was Jesus' idea to start the local church. It was not our idea to start the local church. It was Jesus' idea because he knows that it's important for us to do life together. But what this is referring to is, I'm going to rely upon you to, to do everything for me, which is not what we see here at all. In fact, very rarely do we see where we sit back and do nothing and we receive all the God's blessings. We talk about it in church, I said earlier, connect to grow and to serve. That is not relying upon others. That's what we can do for ourselves and also to bless others. But what Israel did here, let's read in Exodus 17, verses 2 and 3. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink, much like the four-year-old at bedtime. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why are you bringing us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock? This is them dying of thirst and just saying, I can't handle this, rather than focusing upon God. Rather than being... Saying, God, you blessed me here, you blessed me there, you blessed me here. I know you're going to bless me in the future. I know you can provide for me in the future. They said, Moses, you go and you go talk to God, you go work this out. Now, the hard part here is that this is a a real important balance because I believe it's important to be reliant upon others. But not to the point where we never ever move forward in our own personal relationship. I'm going to use this as an example, and this is not not an example I'm using because of any personal illustration from the past week. In other words, this is not me getting back at you. Okay? But the purpose of a pastor, we see in Ephesians chapter number 4, verse 12, it says this to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And in a sense, we can do something similar to what Israel did here. We can come and say, I'm going to go to church, but you pray for me. But I'm not going to pray for myself. You read your Bible and you study, but, and then you fill me up. But I'm not going to read the Bible and I'm not going to study myself. You go and serve others on my behalf while I sit back and just watch you. Does that make sense? And that's what Israel was doing here. They were looking at Moses and saying, Moses, you go and work out with God. Or we're not going to have any faith. In the meantime, I'm dying here. A local church that does not take ownership of its own responsibilities, the individuals within the, in, within the church taking their own responsibility will ultimately fail and will not receive the blessings of God because that's not what God created the church for. It says that verse again, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is to help equip you. That doesn't mean that I don't read my Bible. That doesn't mean that I don't pray. That doesn't mean that I don't serve. It means that I want to equip you so that we can do life and do church and do ministry and help lead others into a relationship with God and help grow you into who God made you to be together rather than being consumers and sitting back. And that's what Israel was finding here. They had turned to themselves. And then they said, all right, that's not going to work. So I'm going to turn and Moses, you go and be spiritual for me. So I'm going to ask you in response to that to join me in a positive way. Join me in reading your Bibles. Join me in studying the word of God. Join me in ministry. Join me in what God has for you to do rather than relying upon others. The other point we have is the positive response. The first two were really natural responses. Israel here was saying, God doesn't care for us. I'm going to take things on my, myself. Moses, you go be spiritual for us. You go on our behalf, and we, we're just not going to have any faith in ourselves. The, the third one is to turn to God. And that's exactly what Moses did. Moses looked at him and goes, why are you quarreling with me? I'm going to go straight to God with this problem. In verse number four, it says, so Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? And He was pretty scared. It says there, they were almost ready to stone me. These people are ready to kill me, God. This, when it says they cried out to God, I think that Moses was pretty scared at this time. God, you're going to have to do something here because I can't do this on my own at all. These people are ready to kill me. Don't send me outside of this tent or wherever I'm praying right now without an answer because they're out there with big rocks ready to throw them at me because they're really thirsty. We see here some basic needs. Moses was crying out to God because people had some basic needs, they were thirsty. In our world today, we have a new and expanded vocabulary of words that did not exist a generation ago. Things like Google, or if you put an I in front of anything, it becomes cool all of a sudden. And you look at the expanded amount of information. There was an online blog called Analytics Week, and they had um, an article called Big Data. And it said, more data has been created in the past two years than the previous history of the human race combined. That's incredible. I don't know how they worked that out. But the last two years had more data than the entire history of the world combined. They said that Facebook has 31 million messages a minute. That's incredible. 40,000 Google searches every second, 1.2 trillion a year. And over that time, as you see the picture on the screen, hardware has shrunk. Aren't you glad? That's a 2-megabyte hard drive in 1952. Now, just a little side note, that image itself was about a megabyte. So just that one image. And then the next to it, 2013, is a similar-sized box. And that is 125, it says there, petabytes. Now, to be honest with you, I had to look that up. Like, what is a petabyte? It sounds very made up, doesn't it? A petabyte is, 125 of them is 125,000 terabytes. So your personal computer has about a, probably a terabyte hard drive. That's 125,000 of them. Incredible. All this knowledge, and where am I going with this? What is this talking about here? All this knowledge that we have, we think that we are so advanced. We still have the same basic needs that mankind has always had. We all have the need to be loved. We all have the basic physical needs that we've always needed. We've all, not always needed an iPhone, although I like having a phone. But we haven't always needed That's not a basic need. God understood the basic needs. And with all the technology and vast information at our fingertips, we still have these basic needs. And God knows what our needs are. In Psalm 139, which is probably my favorite psalm in the Bible, it says this, O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me; it is high, I cannot attain it. God knows us; He searched us; He understands our basic needs. That psalm goes on and says, "You know, before I get up, you know it all about it. Before I lay down, you know all about it. Before I was in my mother's womb, you know, you know, even thought of my father, grandfather's mind." You knew every thought that I was going to have. God knows all about it. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. He's praying to God and encouraging his disciples at the same time. It says this. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We see here that we have some basic needs. But going on to the second point there, not just basic needs, but the second point is the fact that God will stand before you. When Moses came before God and cried out to him, these people are ready to stone me. What do I do? God spoke back to him. And in verse number five of chapter 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, Taking with you some of the elders of Israel. The reason why you take some of the elders of Israel, I want other people to see what I'm going to do here. I want these people who have been whining and crying out, whining and being self-sufficient in themselves, I want them to see what I'm going to do. And taking your hand the staff, with which you struck the Nile. This is the same staff of God that he's been carrying along all along. It's basically, it's not an idol, but it's a symbol of the power of God in Moses' life. And go in verse number six. Behold, I will stand before you. This is not Moses' strength. This is not Moses' power. This is, I will stand before you. Now, Moses went into this. I'm going to imagine he was in a tent. He doesn't say, but imagine he's in a tent. He goes into the tent scared. These people are going to stone me. These people just outside the door there sent me in here. If I don't come out with a good answer, I am dead. And God says, I will stand before you. You get the beautiful picture there? The image that Moses is there and God is going to be standing right there in front of him. If you want to get to Moses, you have to go through God in, in a very real way. And it says there, I will stand before you there on the rock of Hareb You shall strike the rock. The water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. The main point of this entire message is this. God will stand before you. This is a critical lesson for Moses and the nation of Israel to learn. If you have your Bibles open, scroll down to verse number 8, or flip across the page, depending on how you have it. If you have a thing called paper, look across the other side of the page to verse number 8. What takes place here? Israel had just learned another valuable lesson. God will take care of you. He will go and stand before you. The very next thing that happens is another nation comes. Amalek. That's the Amalekites. That's a long time. You continue reading along. They were fighting against Israel generation after generation after generation. And this is the first encounter they have with Amalek, the Amalekites. Let me read verses 8 through 13 for you, and then we'll make some. Some final statements, and then we're going to live this out ourselves. It says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. That same staff that he had already struck the rock with. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur, there's two other men, Aaron was Moses' brother, held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. In other words, they fought all day. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And there's a response in verse number 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Moses had the promise previously that God said, I will stand before you. And then he took that same rod and stood on the mountaintop over the nation as they fought, held it up. I don't think he just held it there looking around going. "Hmm, hmm. I wish these people would hurry up. My arms are getting tired. I firmly believe that he was holding that up as a symbol for the people. But he was in that while he was holding that, that staff up. I believe that he was praying to God. God bless our people. Protect our people, allow our people to overcome the Amalekites. Will you you know he was standing before God before the people. And he goes he got tired. And he had to have help around him. He had his brother Aaron, another man named Her hold his hands up as he prayed and as he asked God's protection. Now, today, I'm not going to ask you to physically put your hands up or go get a stick and lift it above the, in the air. That's not the point of today. I believe, though, it's critically important to go alongside each other and to pray for each other because sometimes it gets hard doing it by yourself, and you can know that there's somebody else praying for you. It's incredibly encouraging. And I know there's people here today that have gone through health problems, there's people here today that really you shouldn't be out of the hospital already. You know, side note, this is not to embarrass Dave, but 10 days ago he had back surgery. Don't, don't whack him on the back too hard because he had back surgery, major back surgery. He's here today. Back row. But he's here today. People were praying for him. People here, we want to gather around each other today and pray for each other. So I'm going to propose something. In a moment, we're going to close in prayer. And before we do, I want to reread verse number 12. And then after we close in prayer, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And we're going to do something very different for us. And this is not a time to bring attention to yourself at all. This is not a time to seek praise from somebody else. But I believe either where you're you're standing or if you would like someone to pray with you, look and make eye contact with someone you trust or go to the back and I'm, I'm sure someone will find you. We're going to sing a couple of songs, not just one song. We're going to sing a couple of songs. I'm going to use it as a time of prayer and encouragement because we need each other. Because if, if Moses needed help, and he says there, Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so his hands were steady. I find it incredibly encouraging when I know that people are praying for me. So I'm going to propose that we do that same today, is to pray for one another. If nothing else, stay where you are and pray and say, God, I don't want to be self-reliant. I don't want to rely 100% on somebody else. I want to go straight to you and let you be my guide. You will be the one who molds me and creates in me, as the Bible says in another passage, in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's stand and pray.